data science has really started to grow is the, the variety of problems that we're solving with tools that we've really had for decades now. Financial technologies. We're starting to see how we can apply these same methods to new and exciting problems. Better known as fintech. Startups usually focus on like a pretty narrow niche within financial technology. So if you're looking to get a more broad point of view, then I'd probably recommend honestly working at an actual bank or something like that to see the full breadth of all the different technologies that they incorporate. This is the Language of Business, a podcast to inform and inspire entrepreneurs. Anyone thinking about a startup or anyone looking for a post-pandemic pivot. I'm executive producer Don Kelly. Our host is Greg Stoller, Harvard MBA and senior lecturer at Boston University Questrom School of Business. In this episode, we look at financial technologies, better known as fintech, how fintech improves data science, and how it can get you a more accurate appraisal of the value of your home. Here's Greg Stoller. Don, thank you. Have you been bit by the Python bug? No, I'm not talking about the snake or even the craze, but rather the programming language. We're on location virtually with Brock Tibbert, who's a lecturer at Boston University Questrom School of Business, focusing on data science in the information systems department. And welcome to Language of Business. Thanks for having me. Brock, in layman's terms, what is data science? It really boils down to analysis of data. And I think where data science has really started to grow is the, the variety of problems that we're solving with tools that we've really had for decades now. What's really interesting, though, is that because we're collecting more and more data in industry and in our businesses, we're starting to see how we can apply these same methods to new and exciting problems. And how does that play into the world of fintech? So fintech is really interesting. There's a lot of opportunities with what's possible. So everything from credit risk modeling to fraud detection, right? Trying to identify bad actors through transactions, especially as a lot of these transactions move digital. But we're also seeing some really interesting use cases through NLP. And if you think about financial disclosures and trying to look at sentiment of those statements, as well as trying to identify, say, perhaps how green is a company? Are they really behaving the way they actually say they do in their report? So there's a lot of interesting applications there, even down to robo-advising, right? If you think about investment strategies and some, some smaller wins, you can get to nudge your investment portfolios to say, hey, maybe you can think about reallocating this way. And it's all automated. It's all just driven by machine learning and data science. And you mentioned the acronym NLP. What does that stand for, please? Natural language processing. And again, in layman's terms, that means exactly? Working with text data, more or less. Okay. People are running around saying Python this, Python that. As you begin to peel back that onion, you will invariably run into the letter R. What exactly are those tools and how do they work within this world? It's a great question. And it's one that when I'm in my classes, I often say it's not R or Python, it's both. I think they're both very valuable to data science and why data science is so popular today. Now, R is a statistical programming language. It was created by statisticians in that time for statisticians. And it's really robust. And I think a lot of times, too, we see early work, academic work coming through R as a way to get the algorithms out from their papers, right? And then Python has really emerged and come more towards R in the way that we can analyze data. But what's really nice is that they both have strengths. Like I said, R is statistical programming language. Python is a little bit more embedded in the engineering community. But both allow for really easy access to analyze data, fit models, and really put that work into production. As we get further into this, we go from data science to data-centric strategy. Help us to understand what that jump looks like. As we start to collect all this data, like I mentioned earlier, we're starting to really be able to model that, make decisions, see how behaviors can change. We can use 
nudges to really make sure customers can move down the journey that we want. But really boiling that up, what we're seeing that we can do is really make sure that we're making decisions and understand the risk of those decisions. So we can use data, drive decisions, and really bring that forward to make sure we understand as a business how we can move forward and understand the risk of those decisions that we're making or perhaps not making. So further boiling that up, to borrow your phrase, what overall trends are you seeing these days? Right now, I'm seeing a lot of work in terms of how do we get machine learning on devices? So if you think about large compute centers, server farms from back in the day, we're really trying to take the machine learning models that we're fitting and really compress them down and be on device. So if you think of an iPhone or a smartphone, really kind of keeping that machine learning model on that device. And we're really doing that to try to make sure that from a privacy point of view, we're not storing all the data in the cloud that is really centric to the user. The other thing, as I mentioned, I commented on NLP before, I'm really interested in this space. I think there's a lot of opportunity around text data, everything that we generate, whether it's social media posts, I noted financial disclosures. There's so much text data that we're generating that we can start to find opportunities to really learn what's going on. So I comment on chatbots, I comment on sentiment analysis, where even you start to think about scanning medical discharge papers, we don't have re-enlistment back in the, the hospital. There's a lot going on in that community. Ours is a business show. How does all of this relate to business? It's just up and down the whole business framework, right? You can think about internal operations from a human resource point of view, making sure your employees are happy or you can retain your employees all the way down to building products and services that you can put in front of your customers, whether it's B2C, B2B, doesn't really matter. It's up and down the entire business process. Given how fast the train is going down the track, how does Questrom stay current with its curriculum, not only in your classes, but also within your department? We're certainly trying to bring forward all the new methods and techniques into our classes, whether it's classes that we have, classes we're building. We've been really pushing boot camps lately in terms of trying to get these shorter form classes out in front of the students to make sure that we're showing them what's really relevant in industry today, right? So it's not just what's done in practice or in theory, but actually what's applied. We're bringing that forward through hands-on learning, real data sets, not just necessarily reading through the textbook, but also let's see it in action and let's wrestle with the decisions of what we find in the models. Does it make sense? Should we apply it? And I go back to that risk. What is the risk of making this decision? Brock, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Brock Tibber, lecturer at Boston University Questrom School of Business, focusing on data science in the information systems department. Back to you, Don. Thanks, Greg. Next up, how FinTech can get you a more accurate appraisal of the value of your home when the language of business continues. I didn't even realize what it meant to be in a top tier business school until my first day. The curriculum at Questrom is really helpful because you get to not only study the basics of business, such as accounting or marketing, but you really get to dive further in and to see applications of the health sector and how business applies to sustainability efforts around the world. They really want us to kind of focus it on four emerging areas, and those areas were healthcare, security, sustainability, and technology. Those are really where the jobs are going to be. They really want us to come out from the Questrom School of Business and be able to work in any area of the industry. Interested? Go to bu.edu slash Questrom. You're listening to the language of business. We've heard about how FinTech helps with data science. Now let's find out how it can get you a more accurate appraisal of the value of your home. Back to Greg Stoller. Thank you, Don. One of the more popular industries we've discovered is leveraging blockchain and FinTech is real estate. Welcome to Regora CEO Brian Zitten to the language of business. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. Excited to be here. What is your definition, Brian, of fintech? Honestly, fintech in my mind is anything technology-wise that enables financial services, whether it's like the back-end banking stuff that no one ever knows about, 
or some of the more consumer oriented things like a Robinhood or something like that. Basically anything that's enabling financial services. And what trends are you seeing amongst all things fintech? It's definitely evolved over the last 10, 15 years in that it was initially more about tech enabling existing infrastructure. Now we're seeing like the 2.0 versions of a lot of that stuff where it's actually transforming the processes themselves. Whereas before it was like, how do we make existing banking processes better with technology? Now it's how do we redefine processes in general, whether it's what we're doing with appraisal or you mentioned blockchain, you know, completely reinventing how certain things are done. So I think that's kind of the next evolution that fintech is is approaching. On your website, it says that Regora is trying to transform the real estate valuation or appraisal process through software, what does that mean to the average person? Yeah, right now, if you're gonna get a mortgage, you need to get an appraisal as part of that typically. And right now that appraisal will take anywhere from two to maybe even three weeks to get done. It's really slow. And so what we do is we help deliver a more Uber style approach to get the right appraiser at the right time getting to your property. In the future, we envision even you as the borrower may be able to do a mobile app driven inspection of your property yourself, which then gets sent to a database to, to spit out a better, more accurate value. Kind of a transformation of the way that uh, properties are actually value themselves. What are you seeing with your software that someone isn't going to see on Zillow or someone that the bank hires is not going to be able to see in person? The thing about Zillow and the kind of existing automated valuation technology is that it doesn't actually verify any of the interior conditions of the property, which is really important, right? If you're going to buy a home, whether it has granite countertops or not, impacts the value. So that's why we have a physical human who's going and validating that information, whether it's an appraiser, third party, or you yourself. And that's why the banking industry doesn't really trust the Zillow's estimate much. So we still need to improve the appraisal process. And how is Regora specifically leveraging fintech? Well, Regora is a fintech. So we are that financial technology that enables lenders to deliver their appraisals in a more streamlined way. I would describe Regora as an actual fintech company that's providing our technology services to financial institutions. What are the biggest challenges you foresee with Regora in the next three to five years? Anytime that you are trying to innovate in an industry, you're obviously beholden to the regulatory components. Even if technology is far and beyond what is possible today, you need the rest of the industry from a business compliance and regulatory standpoint to catch up. So I imagine we will probably be waiting on that sort of stuff to really take things to the next level. And beyond the challenges that you foresee, what is the single biggest thing keeping you up at night? about Regora's development. We've been growing extremely fast from day one. The things that worry me are just being able to keep up with all of our growth, making sure that we're operating excellently to track with all of that. It's a luxury problem, as we say, but problem nonetheless. For someone trying to get their arms around FinTech, would you recommend they apply for a job with a company like Regora, start doing some reading? What single piece of advice would you give to someone about to graduate who wants to either work for a company in the space or learn about the space in totality. There's definitely no better teacher than actually doing it yourself. So joining a startup in the space will definitely be a forcing function for you to learn as much as possible. That being said, startups usually focus on like a pretty narrow niche within financial technology. So if you're looking to get a more broad point of view, then I'd probably recommend honestly working at an actual bank or something like that to see the full breadth of all the different technologies that they incorporate, or just following a lot of the newsletters in terms of various media groups that are tracking financial technology. So depends on if you're looking for depth versus breadth a little bit. Given how innovative Regora's business model is, are your lenders or venture capitalists evaluating you based on the same types of metrics? Or is FinTech just introduced a completely new lexicon into everybody's lives? When you say evaluating us on our metrics, you mean in terms of like our valuation and things like that? Correct. 
fintech has generally the same kind of measurements as any other venture capital backed high growth technologies. I think that the one understanding that fintech investors have specifically is that because there's really high barriers to entry, because it's a big financial regulated industry, it usually requires more upfront capital to break in. So it's more of that exponential step function versus the progressive growth sort of thing. Being from the industry, people generally understand revenue to bookings trends and things like that a little bit better. Brian, thank you very much. Yeah, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Brian Zitton, CEO of Regora. Back to you, Don. Thanks, Greg. Support for the language of business is from Boston University Questrom School of Business. We now have downloads in 77 countries in 42 states, plus D.C. and Puerto Rico. We appreciate the support. If you like our podcast, please mention it to someone and subscribe. The Language of Business is available wherever you get podcasts or ask Alexa. Our social media is by Jennifer Powell of the Excellent Writers Group. Music by Randy Barth of Osway Media. Consulting producer, Helen Tierney of Happy Accident Productions. Direction, audio editing, and voiceover by yours truly. Special thanks to Mike Carruthers of somethingyoushouldknow.net. For Greg Stoller and the entire team, I'm Don Kelly. Thanks for listening to The Language of Business.